0: Faith works. This is the message of James, that we, in our own ability, cannot stand in the face of adversity. We could never find the strength to trust without faith, because we don't have the capability to see above the trials that we meet, to keep our eyes focused on the King while counting the situation we are currently experiencing as joy. Faith works this is the essence of james we don't work to be saved we work because we are saved without faith without works we too quickly become that man in the mirror staring at his face but then forgets the way he looks as soon as he turns away but with faith with works we stay steadfast on this journey progressively sanctified knowing we'll be perfected once we reach the other side faith works. This is the cry of James, that faith apart from works can never be sustained, that in every day and in every way we should see this truth proclaimed because it's faith that makes us doers of the word, not just hearers. It's faith that keeps us humble, not proud. It's faith that directs our tongues to bless, not to curse. It's faith that causes us to show mercy, not judgment it's faith that leads us to true religion not its empty substitute it's faith that's causing us to preach the good news to every tribe tongue and nation with every breath that we breathe and it will be faith that causes us to worship our god for all eternity this is the message of james faith works
1: Open your Bibles, please, to the book of James. One more time, we are in the book of James. We are down to the last two verses. Uh, It's amazing to think that as long as I've been your pastor, we've been in the same book. Four months in the book of James, and I hope that this has been a season of enrichment for you as much as it has been a joy for myself and Pastor Marcel to share God's word with you over the course of these last four months. Uh, One of the things that we have been learning over the course of that time is that faith is not just an idle intellectualism, but it's lived out by way of what we do and what we say, how we organize our schedules and our calendars and our checkbooks, and everything that we do and say is organized by the faith that we have in our hearts. And not only that, what what James is trying to help us understand is that it is all about progress, not perfection progress not perfection there are two doctrines that James seeks for us to have a greater understanding of and the first is the doctrine of justification what that means is that we have been set free on account of what Christ has done for us his death his resurrection from the cross is also our resurrection we have been set free on account of Christ before we have done anything at all And then on the back end, we come to the doctrine of sanctification, and that is the slow and steady progress of looking and acting more like Jesus. When you look in the mirror, especially for those of us who have been following Jesus for 10, 20, even 30 years or more than that, can you see that you look more like Jesus today than you did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 plus years ago? Are you seeing the progress in your life? And remember, James, he is writing to a church that is on the run from persecution. They have lost their homes. They have lost their families. And what James means to do is to give them a means of encouragement on their journey, but also to instruct them on what it looks like to be the church. And so as we draw this series to a close this morning... I think it's helpful for us to be thinking about everything we've been learning over the course of the last 16 weeks, because James is going to make a series of assumptions this morning on what it means to be the church. That's the big question for us as Gateway Church. What does it mean for us to be the church? What does that look like to be the church? And so there's two assumptions here that James wants us to know on the front end. The first one is this. We are all prone to wander. Remember that old familiar hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love so take my heart Lord take and seal it seal it for thy courts above every single one of us as a result of our sin nature we are prone to, to leave the straight and narrow and to go off the beaten path and the second assumption right on the heels of that that he makes is we need the church when we are prone to wander not if we wander when we wander wander We need each other. We need the church. Now, there's an issue that that we need to come to terms with this morning. A little bit of unlearning that we need to do before we get started. Because here's, here's the issue that we're facing today. For over 1,900 years, whenever Christians thought of the word church, they were thinking of the people of God. Whereas today, I think oftentimes we think of church... As something else We think of church as perhaps even A place where we go For over 1900 years They would have a completely different view Than the view we have today They weren't thinking about stained glass They weren't thinking about wooden beams They weren't thinking about comfortable chairs Or an elevated stage They weren't thinking about Effective children's ministries Or weekly ministries You would never hear them say something like Hurry up we're going to be late for What's the word help me We're going to be late for church. You would never hear that because church wasn't somewhere you went. It was something that you fundamentally are. And that is the current problem that we have as a church today. What I've outlined in your sermon guide, put it this way. Church has become somewhere we go instead of something we are. Church has become somewhere we go instead of something we are. So here's perhaps a helpful distinction. For almost 1,900 years, when someone used the word church, they were thinking of it as an action verb, whereas today we think of it as a noun. Somewhere I go to, somewhere I flee from, whereas the church always has been the people of God. The Greek word for church is the word ecclesia, and within that is the Greek word kaleo, which literally means to call. So the church literally means the called out ones, those who have been called by God for the purpose of the will of God everywhere they go to expand God's kingdom, to share the good news of the gospel. The church is the people of God. Now perhaps you've heard of a children's nursery rhyme it goes a little bit like this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple and inside here's all the people. How many of you have come on loud and proud. How many of you heard of this? Look at all the hands. We've all heard of this. Now I'm going to burst your bubble this morning, all right? That is a myth. It doesn't exist. Here's the new children's nursery rhyme that you need to start teaching your children and your grandchildren. Here's the brick and mortar building. Here's the steeple, and inside, here's the what? Help me out. The church. This is the church. The people of God doing the work of God. Always, 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 the church is identified as the people of God. And this is something that has only recently changed in our church history. Let me give you a biblical example of this. This is uh, coming from the book of Romans chapter 16. I have it up on the screen for you. And the Apostle Paul, he is finishing his letter to the church in Rome, a place he's never been. He's desperately wanted to be there. He wants to encourage them and to share the gospel with them. So these are his closing remarks that he gives to them. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well for them. Greet also the church in their house. Did you hear that last sentence? Greet also the church in their house. So you can see here that the the Apostle Paul, he's making a vital distinction between the church... And the house, the people of God, and the building they inhabit. And so the current Ecclesia problem, the issue that we have with uh, our understanding of church today is it's somewhere we go rather than something we are. And the second issue we have is this. Christianity has become a private relationship rather than a mutual calling and family, It has become a private relationship rather than a mutual calling and family. And aside from the first example, this is something that has been alive and well for centuries. You can go back to the days of the mystics and the monks. You can go back to uh, the days of the monasteries and you see it there too. But I think the issue has been exasperated today As a result of the fishbowl that we live in, called the 21st century North American culture, one of the things that we tend to venerate more than anything else is this hyper sense of individualism. I know what I want. It's all about me, my dreams, my desires, my goals, my aspirations, me, me, me. And every time we read scripture, our worldview, our lens, our perspective is guided by our cultural values. We're always thinking in terms of what does this mean for me? Whereas the early church, they were always thinking what does it mean for the church? The gathered people of God, not just me. And so there's two issues that we have with this. We have, number one, uh, the anonymity that comes with going to church rather than being the church, the people of God, and this hyper sense of individualism that comes with our culture and our context in Canada in the 21st century. And so because of that, we need to kind of unlearn that and to have a, a proper picture of what the church ought to be. So here's what I put in your note sheet. The church is a family. The church is a organic, living, breathing family. It's not until we gather together, invoking the image of God, does this place become the church. Without all of you, it's just a building. That's it. You are the church. Here's what Paul says in the book of Ephesians, his letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 19. He says this So then, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are a member of God's very own family. And you belong in God's household with every other Christian. It doesn't say the church is like a family, it says the church is a family. In fact, I've already mentioned this to you in our prayer for Jonathan and Christine. Just think about this for a second. Your spiritual family will outlast your biological family by the duration of an eternity. You see, that's the reason why Julie and I are are willing to serve in a church in Abbotsford, British Columbia, even though we have no bloodline family here, because we know the promises of God that we will still have a spiritual family. You are our spiritual family. My brothers and sisters in Christ, and I am your spiritual brother. The reason why we're willing to be here and not in Edmonton, Alberta, or the east coast of Canada where my family is, is because you are our spiritual family and this is this is what the holy spirit invokes within us that this longing and this desire to live into this reality right now not waiting until heaven on the other side but right now that we would function as a spiritual family and number two god desires for you to be a member of the family to be a member of his family this is God's will. It, it's not optional. It's not on the a la carte menu. You can take it or leave it. If you want to, to have a relationship with God the Father, then you've got to get along with the kids. If you want to be in the household of God, then you have to get along with his children. See, the oxymoron with our individualism, when, when we say, you know, I just want this private me and Jesus relationship, but, but I don't really want the church, it doesn't make any sense. It's incoherent, scripturally speaking. It would be like saying, I want to play in the NHL, but I don't want to be on the team. I want to be in the army, but, but I don't want to serve in the platoon. I want to play a musical instrument, but I don't want to be part of the orchestra. It doesn't make any sense. It comes with the territory. You have to have both or neither. And here's the third thing. A Christian without a church family, on account of the first two things we looked at, is an orphan. An orphan. You see, God, he has given us in Scripture, in the New Testament, approximately 66 commands and instructions that necessitate the gathering together of the Christian community, the one another commands of Scripture. And if your understanding of church is it's somewhere I go rather than something I am, and if your understanding of Christianity is it's a relationship with Jesus, but it's not the called-out community of faith, then there's no way you are going to be able to live out the one another's of scripture and i would argue scripturally speaking it's going to be really hard for you to practice christianity without the church the people of god and so when we do this we we isolate ourselves from the household of faith and then number 2 here's the real danger we are tempted to make god in our own image because the only voice that is speaking into your interpretation of scripture is your own and you begin to make God in your own image and you go wow God loves the things that I love and he hates the things that I hate and we tend to agree on most subjects because we're not part of the church And when we do this, when we have this perspective where we are going to church rather than being the church and a privatized view of Christianity, the third point on your note sheet is this. We now have nowhere to live out the one another's of Scripture. We have nowhere to live out the one another's of Scripture. Like I said, depending on on, uh, how you count, there's roughly 66 commands and instructions on how we ought to live in and through one another's lives. But if the epitome of church is, I'm going to go somewhere for 75 minutes, maybe 90 minutes if the preacher preaches a little long, and then we go about our merry way, and we don't actively engage the community of faith throughout the week, it's going to be really hard to do this. And that's James' desire for this early church, this persecuted and displaced church. He wants to encourage them to gather together and to be the church for the sake of one another. Let me just give you a couple of examples from Scripture. I'm not going to read all 66, but let me just give you a handful of them. Romans 12, verse 10 says this. Be devoted to one another. Romans 12, 10 as well. Honor one another above yourselves. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to daily love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Romans 15, verse 4. Instruct one another. Galatians 6, two carry one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in all things with love. John 15.12, this is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Those are the words of Jesus. So answer me this. If your interpretation of church is, a pl- is simply a place that you go to, rather than something that you are, and we aren't actively engaged in such a way that we are seeking to sharpen one another as the book of Proverbs highlights, how are we going to be able to live into the one another's of Scripture? So in contrast to all of that, I want us to have a biblical vision and understanding of what the church ought to be. And with that, I want us to turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. If, if you're in the book of James, you only have to turn back literally three pages. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 24. Hebrews 10, 24. It says this. "'Let us consider how we may spur one another on "'toward love and good deeds.'" Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. Now, every single time I read this passage growing up, I always thought that the author of Hebrews was referring to the corporate worship service. Every time, I I thought what he was saying is, you better meet together Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I thought he was talking about Sunday morning worship and for some even Sunday evening worship. No one ever explained to me that the context of this passage, what he's actually talking about here is people gather together not in rows looking at the preacher in the front but in circles invoking the image of God, sharpening one another, encouraging one another all the more. Living out the one another's of scripture. That is what the author of Hebrews is trying to portray. You see, scripturally speaking, the way that Christians grow is if they are Velcroed to two things number one, the Word of God, and number two, fellow Christians. In doing so, we invoke the Holy Spirit, and that is how we cause one another to grow in sanctified living. Now, listen. I'm not trying to work myself out of a job, okay? It's not that I'm trying to poo-poo the corporate worship service or anything like that. I think this is absolutely essential, what we are doing here, gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ to give due praise and glory to our Lord and God. My hope and my prayer is that you would organize your schedule so that you can be here every week. And if you're on vacation, worship with another gathering of the church. But so much more than that, the challenge of Scripture is are we living our life in such a way that we are actively engaged in the one another's of Scripture? That's the litmus test. Are you living your life in such a way that you are setting aside time to gather together with other Christians? Parents, what's one of the biggest concerns that you have when it comes to your adolescent kids? Can we agree that that one one of our biggest concerns is who they hang out with, right? Peer pressure is real, right? And you know that depending on who your kid hangs out with, it could mean an excellent year at school or a really difficult one. Maybe as a result of peer pressure, they would go down a path that you otherwise wouldn't encourage them to go down. And so, as parents, we're concerned about who our kids hang out with. But here's the interesting thing about the author of the book of Hebrews. He's not talking to junior high kids. He's not talking to high schoolers. He's talking to adults. Because the same motif is at play here. The same exact critical uh, commonality where, where we can be influenced Positively or negatively by our peers, that is true for us as adults as well. I mean, in in my own life, I'm a better person because I married Julie. Like, there are so many times when I'm like, hey, Julie, let's do this, and then she very graciously gives me that look where she says, should we really be doing that? And I'm just like, you're right, you know? She makes me a better person. I make better choices on account of her being next to me. And I'm sure you can think of people in your own life where you would say, you know what, this person brings out the best in me. Or, contrasting that, this person brings out the worst in me. As a result of our social relationships, we can go down very different paths. So repeatedly, Scripture is telling us that the key to spiritual growth is relationships. Just a few passages of Scripture that you can look at the context later, but I'll give you a few sentences right now. Matthew 18 verse 20: "Where two or more gather in my name, there I am with them." Proverbs 27:17: "Iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another." And Hebrews ten, twenty-four. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good deeds, not neglecting to gather together, invoking the Holy Spirit, one another's of Scripture, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. Now we could go on, but I hope you see that Scripture is, is drenched in this idea that we ought to be living out the one another's of Scripture, ought to be engaged with other believers on an ongoing basis. And with all of that in mind, all of those assumptions being made, James finishes his letter. And here's what he says. James chapter 5, verse 19. Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from their error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of of sins. Is that kind of a, a strange place to end a letter to you? I mean, there, there's no like closing greeting, there, there's no closing remarks or uh, encouragement for them to remain steadfast in the midst of their persecution. He just ends right there. And I want to propose to you that James is doing this strategically because he knows that the greatest way that we can make sure that a a fellow believer doesn't fall off the path is if we are constantly engaged in such a way that we are caring for one another on an ongoing basis. So here's two assumptions that James is making when he writes the last two verses. The first assumption is this. He assumes that we would know when someone wanders from the truth. That we would actually know. See, this doesn't doesn't happen in an anonymous context, where you just go to church, or you leave church, or you go to a different church, or you're just constantly moving around. If you're an anonymous face, no one will ever know if you flee from the church or if you go off the path. So James, he's assuming that you would actually know when someone left, and number two, he's assuming that we are in a close enough relationship that we would have the relational equity to have a tough conversation and to bring them back. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever, have you ever tried to have a what I like to call a come-to-Jesus conversation with someone who you had no relational equity with? Have you ever tried to give them a hard word, but they didn't actually know you or trust you? How do those conversations go? They don't go very good, do they? It tends to be that those kinds of conversations only go well if you have a lot already invested in the relationship. If you can make that transaction, if you will, and they know that you love them, you care for them, you have their best intentions in mind, but all of that is assumed. And this doesn't happen in a world of casual acquaintances. So here's the principle that I want to give you in your note sheet. The principle is, is the church is a family where I, fill in your name, where I, Justin, need to be, number one, genuinely known. I need to be genuinely known. You see, if I view the church as a place to be rather than something I am, suddenly it feels more like a house than it does a home. Being known is powerful I think of the words of Jesus in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah forty-three, verse one. This is what God says to us. He says, "But now, says the Lord, He who created you, He who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, Justin Carruthers. You are my child. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes." The world does this a little bit better. By a show of hands, how many of you are familiar with the old show Cheers? Everyone above 50, just raise their hand. It's a great show, right? You know, Julie and I, we got into that for a little while, then we stopped. But you know that if you're familiar with this show, it starts exactly the same way every single time, and it's kind of their their theme song, if you will. And what I want to propose to you, even though this is a TV show about people gathering together in a bar, this theme song portrays a spiritual reality. Let me just just read this to you. Making your way in the world today, it takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where, help me out, everybody knows your name and they're so glad you came you want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same aren't they you want to be where everybody knows your name i want to say this to you as as gently and, and humbly but unapologetically as possible knowing the spiritual reality that, that we need to be genuinely known, don't be surprised when your unchurched and unbelieving family and friends and coworkers and neighbors choose the cheers version of the bar over our modern interpretation of the church. Because something that's inherent in every single one of us is this longing to be known and if we're an anonymous face here, but I'm in close solidarity in another group over there, then of course I'm going here because they love me and they know me and they care for me. And my prayer for the church is that we can unlearn this, this new habit that treats the church as a place where we go, that we would throw that away and in its place, we would pick up on the spiritual dimensions of this Cheers theme song that we would recognize that inherent in every single one of us is a longing to be known. And number two, we need to be lovingly supported. Lovingly supported. Knowing that every time I fall into trouble, you're not going to talk about me. You're going to come directly to me because you care for me and you love me. And you have my best intentions in mind. And that I can make the same promise to you. And that when, when you share something of confidence to me, that I will keep it in confidence. That I will always put your best foot forward. That I'll be constantly encouraging you and strengthening you and challenging you and seeking to equip you. Because that's an element of what it means to be the Church. I think for example of what Paul says to the church in Galatia. This is chapter 5 verse 19 where he lays out a list of things we ought not to be engaged in. Here's what he says. Now the works of flesh are evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. It's quite the list, right? But then he continues. Hatred. Division. Jealousy fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension and disagreement, factions and envy. And I think we look at that first list and we say that, that makes a whole lot of sense and then Paul goes for the jugular and he says also the old life is revealed by how we might treat one another. If we're not in the business of encouraging one another but we are causing factions and envy and strife and disagreement, you can do it that way too. And so it's within the context of of being genuinely known and lovingly supported, number three, we can now be honestly challenged, where we can be honestly challenged in the faith. That's where our text goes, right? James has been leading up to this point this, this longing, inherent longing that God has placed within us, this Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this community of persons but one God invokes the same image in us that we have a longing to be in community with each other where we can be genuinely known and lovingly supported. And when we have those things, we can be honestly challenged in the faith. And that's where he says those words. Let me just read it one more time to you with all of that context in mind. Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's only when we are known and loved will we have the capacity to make that transaction, right? You think, for example, every time you go to the bank or you go to an ATM, the only way you can make the withdrawal is if you've put money in, right? And the same thing happens in a relational sense. The only way we can have those tough conversations where we can honestly challenge someone, where we can try to bring them back to the straight and narrow is if we have those relationships on the front end. Because if we don't, practicing discipline is going to be really, really tough. You see, as a board of elders, we talk about this all the time. I've been your pastor for four months and we've already had this conversation a number of times. And and this is the promise that we make to you as a board of elders. It's this. To lovingly exercise discipline when necessary for the glory of God, for the good of the one disciplined, and the health of the church as a whole. And we do this It is our prayer to do this well because we love you and we love Christ's church. And our prayer is that you would be doing that for one another as well, that that we would inspire you as a church to be daily instructing one another as well. And here's why because anonymity breeds sin. Anonymity breeds sin. I've said this to you already this morning, but I'll say it one more time. There is nothing more dangerous than an isolated Christian. There's nothing more dangerous than an isolated Christian. If it's true, scripturally speaking, that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour and destroy Then my hope and prayer for members of the church is that we would would find ourselves within the context of a body of believers so that we could be strengthened and encouraged. And we could do that for the sake of one another. And so here's the principle for you. In every single area of your life, make it hard to hide. You heard that right. In every area of your life, make it hard to hide. Now, that just seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I don't want to air out my dirty laundry. I don't want to share that with other people. And I'm not saying you share this with everyone, but you ought to share it with someone because it is incredibly difficult for us to walk this journey alone. It is the lie of Satan that you need to clean yourself up first before you can be a part of the church. You see, one of the things that grieves me was when my dad passed away a little over six years ago, six years next month. Oftentimes before that, I would share with him a very similar message. I would tell him something like this, Dad, why don't you be a part of a church? And he would always tell me the same thing. He would say, Justin, I need to clean up my life first. There's just a couple things that I need to take care of before I could actually walk back into that place again. See, that's the lie of Satan. It is a bold-faced lie that I believe clings to many God-fearing Christians. They feel like they have to engage in the process of sanctification without the church. And once they do that, then they will have the pride of life to be able to enter back into the relationship with the church. But James says the opposite is true. Come as you are so that we can encourage and sustain one another. Anonymity breeds sin. And number two, life happens when you least expect it. It happens when you least expect it. I recall recently I was watching a commercial on TV for Bayer Aspirin. And there was a woman, she was sitting down at the coffee table, she was having breakfast, and she had some orange juice, and she took a piece of mail, and she opened it up, and it wrote, your heart attack arrives today. Letting us know that in the real world, that doesn't actually happen. Life happens when we least expect it. For those of you who have endured loss, the death of a loved one, a miscarriage, a lost job, a broken relationship, you know that the vast majority of those cases, they don't come with forewarning, do they? They just hit you in the face. And in that moment, you feel like you've lost everything. Life happens when we least expect it, doesn't it? And when it happens, not if, when it happens, We need the people of God to care for us. We need it for those moments, at the very least. But the reality is that for the person who treats the church as somewhere they go rather than something they are, and they have a private me and Jesus relationship, it's going to be really hard to care for the needs of that person. For the sake of your soul, for the sake of your heart, my heart for you is this, that you would be a part of the church. You wouldn't go to church, you would be the church. Let me just read to you the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 2. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, "'Carry one another's burdens, "'and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ.'" If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Now, does that sound oxymoronic to you? Verse 2, again, says carry one another's burdens. And verse 5 says carry your own load. Now, which is it? Is it one or the other? Now, it might be helpful for us to have a better understanding of the Greek language when it comes to the word burden, that means an incredibly heavy burden, a crushing weight. And the word load is like thinking about a backpack. And I think oftentimes we get this a little bit backwards what what the Apostle Paul is saying is when it comes to those crushing loads, we ought to be doing this with one another, carrying one another's burdens. And with those backpack issues, you can carry your own load. But oftentimes, when it comes to our prayer life, we might be willing to share with someone, "Hey, my daughter has a piano recital. Uh, would you pray for her?" Or my son, he made the varsity team. Would you pray for him? Or uh, my husband, he has the man flu and I've been told that the man flu is even worse than giving birth, so could you pray for him? Right? Well, the, little, the little loads we'll ask people to pray for, but if you're struggling in your marriage, hey, let's keep that anonymous. That's for us. That's not for someone else. If you have an incredibly difficult burden that is bearing down on you, that is crushing you, we say we're just gonna keep that to ourselves. And Paul is saying the opposite thing. Sure, it's okay to pray for the man cold. That that's perfectly fine. But you could carry that yourself. But when it comes to these heavy burdens, carry them with one another. Life is too difficult to do alone. Find other God fearing Christians in your life who are willing to walk with you in your journey. I've been a pastor for only six years, but I can tell you, oftentimes when it comes to marriages, I always enter into the relationship too late. The divorce papers are already written up and they say, Justin, what can we do? I, I asked them, how long has this been happening? Oh, about 10 years. Have you shared it with anyone else? No. Do you, see, do you see how the Apostle Paul is trying to help us understand that when it comes to these heavy loads, bear them with one another. Be quick to share with those who love you and want to care for you so that we can encourage one another. And then third and finally, before we close, confession is hard enough as it is. Confession's hard enough as it is. We need a place where we are known. We need a place where we are loved. And in that context, then we can be honestly challenged in our faith. But my concern is when it comes to confession, we often do so anonymously. Here's what I mean by that. In the Catholic Church, when you engage in confession, you go to the confession box, and it's anonymous. And in the Protestant Church, we have corporate confession, we have personal confession, but both of those, once again, are anonymous. What about those moments when we can actually confess to one another as scripture clearly indicates? That's something that that we don't really do all that well. And so James, his encouragement, what we learned from Pastor Marcel last week from God's word is we ought to constantly be in the business of praying for one another. We need to give each other the opportunity to do that. So as we close this morning, here's my encouragement to you. Here's my question. Are you going to church or are you being the church? My hope and my prayer for you, if you are a member of Gateway, that you would join us in this mission to be the church. That we could beat the cheers version of the bar. That we could say, we will be a place where people can be genuinely known, that they could be lovingly supported and that they could be honestly challenged in the faith, that they are not an anonymous face in the crowd, but that they are known and loved. And if you are not a member of Gateway, my prayer for you is this, be a part of the church. It doesn't have to be here. If it is, we will say praise God, and we will say welcome home, and we will embrace you, and we will enfold you. But my prayer for you is that you would be a part of the Capital C Church, that you would find yourself within the context of a church where they preach the word of God, where they administer the sacraments, where they engage in church discipline, where you have an opportunity to use your gifts and to invoke the one another's of scripture. Let us be the church rather than go to church. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would plant it deep within our souls, that we would have a greater understanding of what it means to be the church, the called-out believers of God to do the work of God, to encourage one another, to sustain one another. Inspire us for that task. And Lord, in areas in which we have failed as a church, We ask that you would forgive us, that we would confess of this, that we would repent from it, and that we would be committed wholeheartedly to make sure that there was no anonymous face at Gateway, that each and every member would be known and loved and, if necessary, could be honestly challenged in love. Guide and direct us to this aim. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.